0: Well, Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to continue to reflect into the gospel that we will hear on Sunday, this third Sunday of Lent. I am flying solo. Debbie will not be with me this week. So again, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can also go to my website. I know I've been receiving quite a few emails there. Just go to org and go to the contact link there and send your email and your question or observation um, on its way. I always uh, gladly receive those. So anyhow, it's uh, the third Sunday of Lent, huh? And we have another rich gospel we depart from the Gospel of Mark for a little bit, and as we go through one particular Gospel in each year, as I've noted before, during special seasons like Advent and Lent, there is a tendency to depart from those Gospels to capture the essence of that season found in another Gospel. And that's what we have today. Today's Gospel comes to us from the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles out there, turn to chapter 2, This is the cleansing of the temple. So chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, and it reads as follows. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all, with the sheep and oxen, out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them, because he knew all men, and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew. What was in man. Amen. So what I want to do this evening, my friends, is engage this text in its uh, biblical theology, in some of its historical and theological concepts, and then we will apply this and what it means in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So off the top, Passover. Now, what is Passover? Well, Passover is celebrated every spring to commemorate Israel's rescue from Egyptian slavery. If you go to Exodus 12, this is what it recounts. Now, three times the Passover is mentioned in John, indicating that our Lord's ministry extended beyond two years. Nearly 80% of John's narrative places Jesus in Jerusalem. Certainly, the synoptic gospels recounting the life of Christ give greater attention to the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Now, what of this cleansing of the temple as a whole? Well, it's interesting. This event, this episode, is recorded in all four Gospels. Why is that significant? Well, it's really significant when there are differences among them. One difference among them is that John places the event at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, while the other Gospels place it at the end of his ministry. Now, two explanations for this are possible. The first All four counts may refer to the same event. If this is the case, John moved the episode to the beginning of his narrative to highlight a very important truth. As it stands, the temple cleansing makes the same theological point as that in the preceding Cana episode. Remember, the wedding feast at Cana, the marriage at Cana is chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The cleansing of the temple is chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And ultimately, that theological point is this. Jesus brings a new covenant that supersedes the institution of the Old. He is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. But he just doesn't fulfill it. He at once transforms it. And this is the insight to be gained here. I should probably pause here to define covenant. The word covenant comes from the Latin convenire, which means a compact agreement or a coming together. Certainly, in sacred scripture, God elevates this understanding of covenant to not just an exchange of things, but an exchange of persons, where he doesn't say, This is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This is what lies at the heart of the covenant. So, where is this realized perfectly? Well, what does Jesus Christ himself say in Mark 14 24? But this is the blood of the new covenant, this is the blood of the new testament he pours himself out on the cross as a Eucharistic sacrifice that we might share in this very life with God in this great covenant of the Eucharist. Now, to its second explanation, Jesus may have cleansed the temple twice. In fact, some historians have dated the episode in John around approximately 27 or 28 A.D., This calculates nicely 46 years that we actually read from the gospel, huh? From the time Herod the Great began renovating the temple in 19 or 20 BC. Certainly, this date fits more easily into the early period of our Lord's ministry than the latter part of it. So, uh, collectively, we can see both of these as being true. Now, what of the Jerusalem temple? I think it's important for us to get an image in our head of what the temple is if we don't already have that image. The Jerusalem temple was divided into several courts. The outermost court, open to Gentile pilgrims, was used for selling sacrificial animals and exchanging foreign currency for the appropriate coins needed to pay the annual temple tax. This is what, of course, our Lord is seeing. Jesus is angry that the merchants are robbing Israel through inflated rates of exchange and robbing the Gentiles of the opportunity ultimately to worship and pray. And I think this is the more important point. So he's angry at the merchants for robbing Israel through these inflated rates, but at the same time, and more importantly, I think robbing the Gentiles of the opportunity to worship and pray. How about our Lord's aggressive actions? He poured out, he overturned. This is a prophetic sign of the temple's eminent destruction. The expulsion of oxen, sheep, and pigeons from the precincts likewise signifies the termination of animal sacrifice in the temple. We see this drawn out a great deal in the church fathers. And how about this language of zeal for your house? This is a reference to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 depicts the suffering of the righteous, huh? who are pained by the insults that sinners heap upon God. This ought to rekindle that beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. We often think of that beatitude in the context of the blessed are those who weep, maybe for those who die. It's more about this Psalm 69, blessed are those who grieve man's earthly plight. Blessed are those who are pained by the insults that sinners heap upon God. They are blessed. They are in favorable standing with God. Why? Because they are the righteous. They are the holy. They are the meek. They are the humble. They don't sit there and self proclaim that they are righteous. They understand what humility is all about. So, Jesus, burning with righteous indignation, is outraged that business dealings have taken place of prayer in the temple courts. So, what does he say here? Jesus challenges his critics to destroy not the sacred building, but his own body. Ironically, the latter is destined to replace the former. After the crucifixion, what? The temple of Jerusalem will be raised to the ground in divine judgment, while the temple of our Lord's body will be raised from the grave in divine glory. This, of course, is the seminal truth that comes to us from this whole reading. In rereading this episode, I was most struck by that phrase, He knew all men. You know, the supernatural knowledge of Jesus is highlighted all throughout the Gospels. In this case, he detects deficient faith in those who marvel at his miracles, but fail to grasp the significance of his mission. In the subsequent episode, we see Nicodemus as one representing such inadequate belief. You know, I often say as it relates to miracles, when we see the supernatural, if we have been so privileged to see the supernatural, what is the greater miracle? The miracle of what we see with our own eyes or the deeper interior transformation of the heart? If we see something extraordinary, what is ordinary should be transformed. It should be at once seen for what it is. Weak and in need of God. One of the overarching truths that came to us from last week is in that mystical encounter that Peter, James, and John had with our Lord, what did they want to do? They wanted to pitch tent, they wanted to worship, they wanted to commune with God, they wanted to enter into a holy communion with God. Did they not? This is what encounters with the supernatural are all about. This is what mystical theology is all about. We have these encounters with the supernatural, and out from those encounters, we have this keen conviction that everything we now do in the ordinary life must be caught in the extraordinary, the supernatural. This is what it's about. Jesus deeply loved the Jerusalem temple. He had been brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph as a newborn baby and probably came time and time again for the many pilgrim feasts. Of course, we see him as a 12-year-old in Luke 2, right? For him, the temple was the Father's house, and that was why he felt at home there. That was also why he could not bear to have it turned into a house of trade, a robber's den, indeed, huh? (laughs) Where God was concerned, Jesus could be far from peaceable. Sometimes he was seized by a holy wrath. The cleansing of the temple is one such instance. This gospel is read during Lent because it is something that needs pointing out even today. Not in the cathedrals or churches that have many tourists visiting them and leave so much to be desired and probably remind us of uh, today's gospel. Because how they have been commercialized, but above all within ourselves. And so, with that, let us consider maybe on a more personal level what lies at the heart of this cleansing of the temple. Because surely our reflections for this evening would not be enough if we just left it to biblical theology, not applied. For we are God's temple. And our Lord's holy wrath is set aflame by all the rubbish that is collected within us. And just as Jesus used a whip to drive out the temple, all commercial activities, so he does not hesitate to make occasional use of strong means in our case, because it is in his will that our body and our soul be God's dwelling place and should not decline into robbers dens. The cords of the whip might, for instance, be the consequence of our mistakes and our sins that we have to suffer. They should help to expel from our lives much that is bad, so that we may once more be God's dwelling place. This is what Lent is all about, is it not? How badly we need this cleansing of the temple— is in many ways shown by the final remark in today's gospel reading, what I've already noted. Jesus knew what was in man. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows whereof we are made and how incapable we are of expelling all the rubbish from our lives by our own efforts. That is why he takes the cleansing of the temple into his own hand. If we just look at the cleansing of the temple— as a historical event, then we will fail to see the deeper meaning behind it. Earlier, I mentioned the church fathers. It was Origen who saw how the cleansing of the temple, allegorically speaking, was the sanctuary of the undisciplined soul, filled not with animals and merchants, but with earthly and senseless attachments. He said, and this is Origen, Christ must expel them with the whip of his divine doctrine to make spiritual worship possible. Why? Because he knows what is in our heart. And what instrument does he use? But the cross. Earlier this week, we were talking about St. Peter Damien and his devotion to the cross and how we can learn from contemplating the cross, the deeper meaning of the cross. The instrument he uses is the cross because, of course, this is what he puts on his back, and this is what he talks about today. Destroy this temple, says Jesus, referring to his body, which was killed on the cross, and in three days I will raise it up. I will rise from the dead, he says. The apostles first understood what that meant after it happened, and we can understand it if we accept many of the trials in our lives as being purifications, Jesus bore them for us. And with him, there is a resurrection, a new life. Thus, the cleansing of the temple in so many ways is still happening today. But here is something important for us. We are not just made to see this as an annual thing during Lent. I think there's a tendency today to look at these 40 days of Lenten practices and Lenten sacrifices as that which belongs exclusively to Lent. And we have to get out of this mindset, because in many ways, what Lent provides for us, and also Advent, is that need to rekindle what lies at the heart of our faith, so that the subsequent months, weeks, and days are a reflection of what we have learned, how we have been renewed in the interior life. Far too often, Uh, We get to Easter Sunday and then we just cash in all of our sacrifices and we feast like we've never feasted before. And we forget the why behind it all. If there is one thing that this Lenten season rekindles, it is that overarching truth of that great battle cry that comes to us from the early church motus operandi. What operates your motives? Why do you do what you do? I've said this before, but I can never say it enough. Why do you wake up in the morning? What makes you tick? Is it your selfish appetite? Or is it willing the good of the other? We have to will the good of the other. We have to make it habit. And in doing so in time, while it might be difficult, it will become a joy. And when it becomes a joy, you will want to do it more. What you feed grows anywhere and everywhere. We have to enter into this great truth so that when Easter Sunday comes, we have learned our lessons, and now we will integrate those lessons we've learned in just not the season of Easter, but also an ordinary time. Origen talked about those senseless earthly attachments. Yes, this season is about detaching ourselves from the world that we might be attached to God, and this takes place When we allow the purification to take place, we have to be cleansed. We have to be purified because our human appetite is just so strong. So the gospel narrative for us today provides more than just a theological reflection about the temple, but a spiritual application that should transform our lives. He knows our hearts he knows what makes us tick. It's not that he doesn't know. It's that we don't know. Huh? And we gain a deeper insight into this when we allow God to cleanse us. I've already spoken to one beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. How about blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God. The Greek there for pure is katharos. It's rich with Old Testament illusion, specifically to... This Levitical priestly sense of the word, because it speaks to offering. Blessed are those whose hearts have been consecrated to God. Blessed are those whose hearts are offered to God in all that they do. In this way you abide, you will abide in truth. It is not a coincidence that the word we have in Hebrew for pure is the same word for truth, a okay? a Hebrew word that means both pure and truth. When we are restored in the purity of Christ, we abide in the truth of Christ. And as the Beatitude reminds us, we shall see God. We shall see what God sees, which is (laughs) us for who we are versus for who we are not. Again, the problem isn't so much that God doesn't see us, It's more about we don't see us for who we are because we are stuck in the muck and the mire of sin. So we need to allow God to wield his pruning knife and cleanse us from our attachments. Lent is an opportunity to detach from those senseless earthly attachments so as to be renewed in God. Earlier this week, I spoke of vanity. We think of it in the context of appearances. Well, we have to start thinking about this in another context because it's so much more. It's just not about appearances. It's that but so much more. When the author of Ecclesiastes, at the end of the book, is looking back and he says, Oh, vanity of vanities. What is he saying? What is he actually saying? Well, what does the word vanity mean? The Latin vanus means emptiness, nothingness. When he says, Oh, vanity of vanities, He's looking back on his life and he's saying, wow, I wasted my life. Literally, I wasted so much time. He's saying, I spent too much time thinking about worldly things and not enough time thinking about the things of God. How does the book of Ecclesiastes close? But with an exclamation about the joy that comes from the knowledge of God. If we want to know that surpassing joy and happiness that comes with being in God, we have to enter into this Lenten season for what it is and embrace this gospel narrative for its message. We have to allow Christ to cleanse us from our earthly attachments, and in doing so, we will know the joy of God. A joy, my friends, that comes when we put God first. You know, We did not get into the first reading this evening, and nor do we usually on Friday evenings. But I think for the remainder of our time this evening, we are going to reflect briefly upon the first reading, and maybe more collectively how it impacts our understanding of the faith. It is the Ten Commandments. And as we talk about the Ten Commandments, really what we'll talk about is how the Ten Commandments give us a better understanding of how to understand the larger picture of our faith. So it just won't be the Ten Commandments, but also the Beatitudes and the two Great Commandments. What do I mean? Well, how are the Ten Commandments set up? We have the first tablet or table, which is about putting God first. And then we have the second tablet, the second table, which is how we are called to serve neighbor, how we are called to interact with neighbor. But we will not understand the second tablet if we haven't first understood the first tablet. You get the same thing in the Beatitudes, and essentially, this is what is distilled in the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then, then you will know how to love your neighbor. This is what lies at the heart of our faith. Does it not? So when you talk about the law of God, which is what the Ten Commandments is all about, you're talking about the law of love. And this is the law that Christ came to transform. In that great prophecy of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, what does he say? In the coming of the Messiah, the law will no longer be etched on stone, but inscribed upon the heart. Ezekiel says, God will sprinkle you a new heart. Ezekiel can say that because when Christ comes, he will give us the grace that will actually give us a new heart a heart to love like God loves. As 2 Peter 1.4 reminds us, in this way, we actually share in God's divine nature. And for all of this, it brings us back to the in-God-for-other moment, which certainly is what the Ten Commandments is about. We worship God first, and then what do we do? We are sent forth. This is the Mass. Missio is the Latin, right? To be sent. We worship the one true God. We receive him in the Eucharist. And after receiving this nourishment and strength, we go forth and proclaim the good news. We live in God so as to exist for other. We have received the gift so as to better understand the task. We go deeper in our conversion so as to better understand the mission. We come to know him to make him known. In Christ, we have a new identity, which in turn establishes the new goal. We go deeper in our prayer that our dedication might be more fervent. We enter into God because when we do this, we enter into God's time, kairos. And when we do that, he forms kronos, man's time. The supernatural forms the natural, the infinite, the finite. The interior center, our external activity. This is what is at the heart of our faith. Abide in love so that we might share this love. We do this, my friends, and that aforementioned purification will be something that will be more readily received and accepted. We won't resist it. The deeper we go in our faith as it relates to the law of love, the more we will come to understand the power of purification and the ways in which God desires to use us to build up the kingdom of God. Allow this Lenten season and the practices that you have taken on, and the sacrifices that you have promised you would make to God to mold you and fashion you in the image that God has called you to be. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.